Welcome to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities, brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. We have a great guest for you today, everyone. We're being joined by Courtney Berner, the Executive Director of the University of Wisconsin's Center for Cooperatives. Courtney has recently authored an article for the Nonprofit Quarterly, where she highlighted the Food Cooperative Initiative and Rock USA as two organizations that are helping change the map of cooperative development in the United States. Both of these organizations are sector-focused, focused on serving specific needs, and that's where our conversation gets really interesting. Of course, in our case, the need is to allow our listeners, homeowners and manufactured home communities, the opportunity to democratically control the land on which their neighborhoods sit. The other organization, Food Cooperative Initiative, provides technical assistance, resources, and startup funding to cooperative grocery stores across the country. To date, they've helped 157 cooperatively run grocery stores open, and an additional 100 are in the works. Listeners, before we jump into the conversation, I just want to note that uh, Mike took the day off, so I'll be interviewing Courtney solo. That's right, and thanks for taking the lead on that one, Paul. But I will help out here by reading Courtney's bio. Courtney Berner joined the University of Wisconsin Center for Cooperatives in 2011 and served as Cooperative Development Specialist until assuming the role of Executive Director in January 2018. Courtney develops research, outreach, and education programs on cooperatives and provides support to new and established cooperatives in a wide range of industries. Her areas of expertise include cooperative education, business development, cooperative finance and governance, and innovative uses of the cooperative model. Courtney also teaches a course on cooperatives at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and loves challenging students to think critically about why co-ops emerge, how they differ from other forms of enterprise, and how the model can be used to address current social and economic issues. Hello, Courtney. Thank you very much for joining us on Ownership Matters. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you so much. So tell us now, you've been at the University of Wisconsin, a center for cooperatives for just over a decade. Uh, But the center is much older than that, uh, closer to my age. So can you tell our listeners about the uh, center's history? Yeah, sure. So the center was actually established in 1962 and with a a completely different mission than what we do today. So it was what I like to call sort of part of the broader effort to spread American democracy around the world. And it was actually established as um, an international training center for cooperatives So with some USAID money and support from UW Extension, it launched in the 60s and people from all over the world, managers and directors would come to the center to learn about the United States cooperative economy, uh, about how our cooperatives developed, what they looked like. That went on for a number of years. At some point that USAID money went away and the center really pivoted to what we are today, which is a university-based center that does research, outreach, education, and co-op development across sectors. So we have these, what I call vestigial programs that we haven't been doing since COVID, but pre-COVID, we would still have, I don't know, two to three groups come from other countries. Sometimes we'd host folks from consumer cooperatives in Japan, or we almost always had one or two groups from Brazil each year. They would come to our center and we would put on programming for them about some aspect of the cooperative economy here in Wisconsin or in the United States. So um, we still have some of that programming, but most of our programming now is domestically focused. We have a a fairly robust co-op development program that mostly serves the state of Wisconsin. And then we have a research portfolio 
and some other sort of outreach activities to conferences, things like that. Yeah, great. So what was it about the University of Wisconsin in the early days that attracted uh, cooperators from around the world? Why Wisconsin? Good question. We have a long history as a state of cooperative activity. So starting with farmer-owned cooperatives, the first cooperative in Wisconsin was started by a woman, I believe her name was Annie Pickett, who pooled milk and marketed it to Milwaukee on behalf of farmers. And so we've had this long tradition in agriculture. Madison has long been a hotbed of credit union activity. The World Council of Credit Unions is here. CUNA and CUNA Mutual are here. The Filene Institute, uh, which is a think and do tank for credit unions, is here. There are strongholds in rural electric cooperatives and insurance mutuals. So we have this sort of broad representation of cooperatives in the state. Um, We also have been known for a long time for our, our. cooperative state statutes. So when you start a new co-op in the state, um, how you incorporate. So we have sort of like very good statutes and that were established quite early. So, so for many of those things, and then the university, um, interestingly, or maybe it's not interesting, I don't know, interesting maybe to a small subsection of people is that in most states, there's a land-grant university, and then there's like the other state universities. And in Wisconsin, we, University of Wisconsin-Madison is both the land-grant it's, it's like really the only big state university. And so as part of our extension mission, sort of the extension being this idea of taking the things we're learning in the university and, and extending them, bringing them out um, and making sure that they're benefiting residents of our state, cooperatives have long been a part of that mission. They've been a part of the, the Department of Ag and Applied Economics, which is the department that we're in. So there's, there's many, many reasons, I think, that um, our center is where it is, got started, and has continued to thrive over the decades. I grew up with my mom going to cooperative extension meetings in Pennacook, New Hampshire. And certainly here in New Hampshire, the University of New Hampshire is a land-grant university where cooperative extension Mm -hmm. uh, is operated from. Is that true around the country? Land-grant universities and cooperative extension services go hand in hand? Typically, yes. Oh, so interesting. Wow, that's cool. My mom is also the founder of the Pennacook Bosquin uh, Kindergarten Cooperative, oh, uh, nice. which uh, I have a, the diploma on my wall just to prove that. And just, I do want to say that Cooperative Extension, even because it's it's called Cooperative Extension, but it's not actually a co-op. It's a, it's not, <laughs> it's sort of, they tend to be involved in cooperative enterprise development and supporting cooperatives because of the role that co-ops play in communities and the role that extension plays in communities. But people get confused by that sometimes. So, but it's just called cooperative extension. Right. As I recall, she would come home with nifty ideas of how to be thrifty uh, around the house, which usually, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it was a chance for her to get out. And with Mm -hmm. five kids, I think that was a, a welcomed opportunity. At the center, Courtney, do you have students from the university that are involved in the center? Um, To varying degrees. So one of the parts of my job actually is teaching a course on cooperatives. For decades, there's been a course on cooperatives for undergraduates at the university. So that's the main way that we interact with students, at least undergraduate students. We have a couple of scholarship programs for students to attend the conferences that we put on. We have a scholarship program for graduate students interested in doing research or outreach on cooperatives. And then historically, there have been graduate students here and there who have either come to the university because of an interest in co-ops and wanting to be somewhere either to study law or to study agriculture or to 
study policy or sociology that also are, are interested in connecting to co-ops. So they'll come here and our formal faculty director or myself might serve on their committees, sort of provide them informal support on their research. But the center really is, it's mainly through that, the class and then some, some work with graduate students that we connect to the student population here. So on that, I'm really curious, are you seeing an increasing interest among undergraduate students in cooperatives and cooperative ownership? We hear a lot about this current generation. I'm just curious what you're seeing as a, as a college professor. I think what's interesting is that students don't necessarily recognize the term co-op. They might not be gravitating towards co-ops. I think what students are interested in is alternative models for thinking about business, for thinking about engaging with the economy. So to the extent that I'm, I actually renamed my course a couple of years ago from just being cooperatives to being called alternative forms of enterprise ownership. And so I talk about co-ops and credit unions and B Corps, and it's mostly about co-ops, but just trying to help them situate the cooperative model within this broader cast of characters of organizations that are trying to think differently, trying to behave differently in the marketplace. And so there's this quote by um, Peter Morin, who's a, a French peasant prophet, is how he's described in this book by Nathan Schneider, a philosophy so old that it looks like new. And so I think generations sort of rediscover cooperatives. And there's this idea of, well, we want to create something different. And the co-op model is really a time-tested strategy, a time-tested tool for organizing business differently. I think once students come into the, most of my students come into the class either knowing very little about co-ops or knowing something about one kind of co-op. So maybe they grew up on a farm and so they interacted with cooperatives being part of a farm family. And most of them leave really with their eyes open to what a, a huge role co-ops play in different parts of our economy that they just weren't aware of. Um, so that certainly happened to me when I took the class uh, 12 years ago now. <laughs> Great. Are you seeing more, more students signing up for the class? It's a hard, I took over the class just a couple of years ago and I taught once and then we went into COVID. So it's hard to know what, what I'm seeing. What's interesting is that it's a class in ag and applied economics. And what I saw last year was actually students from across campus taking the class. So not just students in this department, but I had a computer science student and a physics student and a law student. And so that's one of the things I think are really interesting about or is really interesting about cooperatives is that they connect to a lot of different disciplines and can be applied to a lot of different disciplines as well. Hmm. Wow. So speaking of old philosophies and uh, on this, you recently wrote a piece for the nonprofit quarterly that included both the history of cooperative ownership and I'm going to say large scale cooperative ownership in the country and some of the factors and variables that went into building large-scale cooperatives, and then you spoke to some some current trends, but maybe just frame up the history of cooperative development in the United States for our listeners, Courtney. What did this look like 70, 80 years ago? It's interesting. I was actually just getting ready for class this afternoon and, and looking up some of these things as they related to corporations in general in the United States and sort of the, the role of shareholders and the evolving role that was really lost. A lot of people don't understand what American corporations looked like. <laughs> and that mo- actually when corporations were first established in the United States, it was a one shareholder, one vote sort of situation. It was actually, a, they were governed democratically and shareholders in corporations were seen as members 
And so our, our current system of one share, one vote is actually a deviation from how corporations started off in this country. So, and why that's connected to what you just asked me is that sort of the 1870s through the 1950s is often described as this era of corporate capitalism. And what's interesting is that it's also a time period when a large number of cooperatives and mutuals and state enterprises emerged in a, a wide range of industries. So in the 1840s and the 50s, grain and dairy co-ops started to emerge in the Northeast and in the Midwest, folks trying to find a way to get a little bit more market power, <laughs> a little negotiating power um, when selling, selling their crops. Starting in the 60s and 70s, of 1860s and 70s, these grain elevators and other co-ops that had emerged in the Northeast and the Midwest began to spread West and South. So you see that model sort of moving into other parts of the United States. Fast forward a little bit, you've got the 1930s and rural electrification. It's one of, I think, the most powerful examples of cooperative development in our country. You know, we went from in basically a span of 20 years, <laughs> went from 10% of rural homes having electricity to 90% of rural homes having electricity. I mean, it's just massive expansion and huge changes in rural living and farming practices that came along with that shift. And it was really this, you know, what was so powerful about rural electrification is that it was this sort of magical combination of public support, both through technical assistance and financing, in many cases, farmers in these communities that already understand the understood the cooperative model because they'd been organizing cooperatives for themselves already um, related to grain or, or dairy. We've got these like local communities that understand the model and you've got necessary inputs <laughs> from the federal government by way of capital and technical assistance. And I mean, it, it's just incredible what happened within rural electrification. And what that actually did is one of the reasons that there wasn't electricity in these rural communities for so long was that it wasn't worthwhile for an investor-owned firm to expand into rural communities. You think about how the cost of expanding electrification, if you only have, you know, 10 houses <laughs> along 20 to 30 miles of road, it's just, it doesn't make sense from an investor-owned perspective. What the rural electrification cooperatives did is they not only did they expand for electrification, they pulled investor-owned firms in. So we see this in a lot of ways where cooperatives develop, and not only do they benefit the members of those cooperatives, but they have these other tangential effects on the marketplace, whether it's creating competitive pressures for their competitors within that same industry, they're, you know, causing there to be changes within regulation for the rest of their competitors. So there are a lot of interesting ways that co-ops sort of shift the marketplace. So then moving on to, I guess, before the rural electrification piece, you know, in the 1920s is really when credit unions took off. So all of these examples that I've shared, most of them started small. So a lot of the big names in cooperatives, many of them in ag and insurance, you, you know, can tie back to some of these small co-ops, these small mutuals that were started in the late 1800s, early 1900s, mid-1900s. And they've grown and been successful. But there's always been a need in a community that isn't being met. A co-op is, is identified as a way to help meet that need. So um, that's sort of the common thread through, through all of those examples. Mm. And it really was the ag co-ops that led really the expansion of cooperatives into other sectors in the country. Is that fair to say? You know, I don't know if they led the 
incorporation of co-ops into other sectors because the, the first co-op in the United States was actually an insurance mutual started by Benjamin Franklin. It was a fire insurance company. So, True. you know, there were things happening in urban and rural places. Um, I think credit union movement, I think was more of an urban based movement, but you had savings and loans associations that I think had also a rural contingency. And a lot of the, the mutual insurance companies that developed were to provide, to meet the insurance needs of you know, farmers and others in rural communities in a way that was, there were all sorts of issues with the insurance industry. That is the example of where insurance mutuals developed practices around how much capital they had to retain in order, you know, in case there were claims on things. And the insurance industry was a mess and the regulators saw what insurance mutuals were doing and said, oh, (laughs) that makes a lot of sense. That actually protects consumers and then developed regulations to essentially enforce everyone in the industry to behave in many ways like insurance mutuals. So That's great. Thank you for bringing up the Ben Franklin and, and mm-hmm. the first, what was essentially a mutual insurance company in Philadelphia. And of course, uh, Ben Franklin's in the Cooperative Hall of Fame for just that. <laughs> pretty cool. So that's great. Thank you for that little historical tour. Sure. It is incomplete, but those are some of the highlights. <laughs> That's great. Great. Great 19th century and 20th century uh, walkthrough. You also talked about a couple of trends in cooperative development today in your article, and we will post the article to the show notes, everybody. But first, you described sector-focused strategies, both in food and in manufactured housing. Uh, mm-hmm. Yay. And thank you for <laughs> including Rock USA in that. But really wanted just to ask you, in terms of the sector focus, what are you seeing in terms of the strength of what you're seeing in food and manufactured housing from your from your perch as a researcher and academic? Yeah, I mean, I think not to repeat what I said about rural electrification, but there's this sweet spot where you have people who have a need, <laughs> a shared need that can be met through collective action. So whether that's access to a certain kind of food, access to housing, access to fair markets for your goods, for your milk, there's a shared need. And then when you, so that creates energy within a community to change something. So combine that with, and I would argue that in both the natural food grocery co-op space and housing, where you all are operating, (laughs) that there are, are clear needs from the community that have been expressed. And so that creates a little fire. And in a good way. <laughs> and then you pair that with technical assistance that is targeted to housing and real estate is complex. Starting a new grocery store, super complex. These are complex industries, competitive. There's a lot to understand. And so when you have an organization like Food Co-op Initiative or like Rock USA that's able to bring in targeted technical assistance, you know, that understands exactly what the process needs to be, that has refined their own processes in terms of supporting groups that want to start a cooperative or in your case, convert a community to resident ownership. And then this last piece is again, capital. And so one of the challenges in starting new cooperatives can be, it isn't always, but it can be lenders usually don't understand co-ops. And what's one thing we know lenders don't like? risk. And we tend to see things that we don't understand as risky. So I think that what you, what Rock has done, what Food Co-op Initiative has done, what others have done that have taken this sort of sector approach is identified a need in the community and then brought the necessary TA and capital to that need. And it just, it works. I mean, we see, we've seen over and over again, 
that when you can get those three, three things lined up, good things happen. That's really it. And we can't explain enough how the technical assistance and the financing works. And it's on us to be absolutely transparent, which we try to be in everything we do. But people's questions in cooperative development seem to come down time and again. Well, how does how is, do you make this happen? And, and it's as simple as that. Complicated, but at the top level, simple, right? Mm-hmm. Expert assistance, you know, expert assistance and customized financing to just provide a solution time and time again is our objective here. I think you have to have, you don't always have to start off with that fire in a community or a group of people that wants to collectively own something, but you have to get there. (laughs) Certainly that like build it and they will come model has worked in cooperatives. We've seen that work, but it's that member economic participation is is cooperative principle number three. And if if people aren't motivated to use the co-op, then um, it's not going to be successful either. So that's right. Absolutely. No, I, I, didn't mean to overlook the fire. Oh, in the no, valley. I didn't think you were. <laughs> Got to have fire in the valley. And it comes down to, you know, people getting together and, and agreeing to work with one another on a volunteer basis, in our case, you know, for the betterment of the community. And it is always inspiring, Courtney, you won't be surprised that co-op leaders that are doing this really as a legacy for future generations, mm-hmm. they see benefits that will accrue in the future because the first couple of years are the most challenging. And they are also the most expensive. You know, it gets more affordable over time. I digress. I wanted to get to your other trend that you pointed out in your article, uh, which was worker ownership. We've seen an uptick in employee-owned companies here in the country. And your article does a great job of shining a light on that, which is wonderful. I was hoping you could give our listeners uh, just a, an example or two of worker ownership, because I, I think for a lot of our listeners, it's a new concept, you know, where employees actually own the company that they work for. So do you have a favorite co-op story or two up your sleeve? Favorite worker co-op story up my sleeve. That's a, um, <laughs> I should have, I should have thought of one. Well, so broadly speaking, and I'm sure I'll think of one, you know, a worker owned cooperative is a business like any, most other businesses. It's come together to sell a good or a service make enough profit (laughs) to pay your expenses and have a little bit left over to reinvest in the business. It just so happens that it's owned by the workers. So I think instead of picking one, because I want folks to understand the breadth of how this model can be applied, because sometimes worker co-ops get a bad rap of like, oh, it's just like a collective of five people sitting around in a room talking about what color to paint the walls. You know, sure. Does that happen? Probably. Worker co-ops have been used... I know, again, in a wide range of industries. So here, just in Madison, Wisconsin, which has a fairly high number of worker co-ops per capita, we have Union Cab, which is a cab company that's owned by the workers. And in Union Cab, pretty much everyone who works there is a member. You can apply for membership after you've been there for six months. And then similar to a resident-owned community membership affords you the right to participate in the democracy of that cooperative. So you can run for the board, you get a vote on board candidates and other big changes to the cooperative. Within a worker co-op, there are a lot of other ways that they try to engage workers in the day-to-day decision-making. Of course, keeping in mind that they're there's like the big decisions about the business and then there's like the work you do in, in the business. And so Union Cab is one example. Another firm here in in Madison is called Isthmus Engineering. 
It's a really amazing engineering and manufacturing cooperative that actually designs and manufactures like the robots that build other things. So like they make the robot that builds toothbrushes. <laughs> so if you're ever in Madison and want to tour a worker co-op, it's super fun, really interesting. And so that's a, a worker co-op of engineers. I think they have about 60 people who work there now, 65 maybe. Approximately 40 of them are members. Um, they have a longer period. You have to wait before you can apply for membership. I think it's a couple of years. But again, a board of directors, they do things in a very team-based way, again, trying to find ways for employees to engage meaningfully within the business. And so within worker co-ops, you can have org charts that might look very similar to a traditional corporation in terms of there's a general manager and there's project leads and, and other things like that. But then sort of within that co-op, how the worker's voice is, is pulled into decision-making, especially for decisions that impact those workers. That's how they, they differ. And then there are some worker co-ops that are quite small. There is, I'm familiar with a couple of bakeries and coffee roasters that maybe have five to 20 employees. And, you know, maybe all of them are on the board. They have a very flat management structure. So there's sort of everything in between. The largest worker co-op in the United States is a home care cooperative in the Bronx, Cooperative Home Care Associates. And I think, I should, I, this is dangerous. I think around 1,500 to 2,000 workers at that co-op. Oh, that's great. Great. If people are interested in learning more about worker ownership, perhaps uh, even for a company they work at or a company they own, where do you suggest people go? Information about them. There's a few organizations. So there's the Democracy at Work Institute, which is connected to the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Both of those organizations have a lot of information on their website. There's an organization you mentioned, Legacy, earlier, and it brought to mind so one of the reasons I think we're seeing, or a few reasons, but one of them that I think we're seeing more co-op development in the worker co-op space is that one of the, there's been this broader movement as baby boomers retire. A lot of businesses in the United States are owned by baby boomers. When they retire, you know, what happens to these businesses? What happens to these jobs and these services and communities? And so there, our organization is part of something called Workers to Owners. It's a collaborative that was launched several years ago by Democracy at Work Institute and really trying to publicize, promote this idea of owners selling to their employees as an exit strategy in order to leave a legacy both in their community and with their workers. And that in many cases, the employees are the most likely buyer <laughs> for that business. And so um, we're seeing an uptick in the number of, of worker cooperatives that are emerging um, as a result of, of a conversion from a non-cooperative business form to a worker-owned cooperative. So I suggest there's a really great called, uh, what's the actual URL? If you Google workers to owners, and you could probably post it in the show notes, they have a lot of examples of worker cooperatives from around the country and in different industries with pictures and links to news articles about them. So that's a, if you're curious to see examples, that's a nice place to start. That's wonderful. No, that's perfect. Just what we're looking for. It's a really important sector and real opportunity, both for company owners that want to sell and for workers that want more control and want to make sure that business stays in their community and serves the community. Lovely. Great to get that information out. And we will do so in the show notes for sure. This has been really a fun uh, and really interesting. I feel like we've we've attended your class here today, a little historical 
historical tour of, of cooperatives and what you're seeing as significant trends in cooperative development, Courtney. I can't resist asking you as we wind down here, any advice you have from all of your work with cooperatives as a cooperative developer yourself for co-op leaders, uh, resident-owned community leaders specifically, uh, any advice that you have for folks as they're providing really vital leadership to their communities through cooperative ownership, what should they be looking out for? This work is hard. <laughs> and I like to normalize for people that it can be really hard that being the board chair or leading committees, it's we live in a country that has relegated democracy to the ballot box and folks aren't accustomed to practicing democracy in their homes and in their workplaces. <laughs> and so it's not always intuitive for people. And to the extent that, um, yeah, it's, it's hard work, but it matters. It's sort of how I feel every semester when I teach, I go into the semester and I'm like, oh, this is hard. <laughs> And then I come out of the semester and my students are excited about co-ops and are more engaged and are thinking more deeply about how they engage with their communities and the economy. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's worth it. So I, I think cooperative governance, leading cooperatives, whether you're in management or in governance, can be more complicated, but I think it, it's worth it. Well, I think that's an excellent point about cooperative governance and cooperative leadership. It is hard. And I think for our co-op leaders who are with this 24-7. This is their home, their community. There's a lot of important work in setting boundaries and being mm -hmm. really clear when co the cooperative is in business and when we're just being neighbors uh, mm -hmm. that, that we hear co-op leaders talking a lot about. The other thing that we, we see in terms of the cooperative governance and dealing with how difficult this can be at the local level is how important it is for co-op leaders to connect with one another. Mm -hmm. Invariably, it's the Number one piece of feedback we get at trainings is, wow, this was so great to get together with other co-op leaders. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I will often say, and what about the training content? Was that, you know, <laughs> but no, yep. it's really, it's about the peer-to-peer -peer support. It is. Well, co-ops are about people. And I think to the extent, one of the things I love about working in co-ops is that co-ops and their members span the political spectrum, <laughs> but they all have this common language and this common commitment to a model that we all know exists to help people and to help communities. And so to the extent that we can remind people of that and bring people back to that, I think, you know, within resident-owned communities, many of these communities are newer. These conversions have happened more recently. And as co-ops age and you get generation, more than one or two generations away from those founders, people get a little detached. They don't remember what it was like <laughs> before the co-op existed. And so co-ops need to sort of constantly, and as leaders, constantly reminding members, owners of the value of the co-op and, and the importance of it. What a terrific, terrific piece of advice and note uh, to, to close on, Courtney. So thank you so much. This really was super interesting. And I know our listeners are going to learn a lot from this. So thanks so much for joining us, Courtney. And thanks for all your support over the years. No problem. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. All right. Thank you. That was a great conversation with Courtney. It was like going back to school again, Mike. Mm. I really loved hearing her talk about her students and their interest in an alternative ways of doing business. It's interesting that students came to her class from all over the university, physics majors, future lawyers, computer scientists.
That is interesting. And I know from my experiences here at Rock USA that once we start talking about co-ops and rocks and how they work to people, there does seem to be that shift in how successful businesses can operate. In the U.S. especially, we're so used to the corporate structure. And Mike, you'll appreciate this. When she was talking about the history of cooperative development in the U.S., she said electricity co-ops were one of the most powerful examples. Get it? Powerful? Shocking. And I do appreciate a good pun, even if she wasn't trying. But I think we heard Roberta McDonald from Cabot Creamery say that last year, too, that electricity co-ops were really a great foundation to cooperative business in the country. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Talk soon.